Read from chapter 6, the second part of 11, down through chapter 7, verse 7. Our focus will be on verses 3 through 7 in chapter 7, but again, to, to set the context for Hosea's message. Hosea 6, 11b. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened, on the day of our king the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Let us pray. Father, we desire that all of our being, all of our soul, would, would bless you and honor you. And we pray that we would honor you now in the, the hearing of the word, the, the proclaiming of your word, that you would speak, that you would be clear, that you would, would shout, as it were, to, to our heart and soul that we may hear and understand believe and obey. We ask that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the hallmarks of Hosea's writing is his word pictures. In figures and in similes and metaphors, he gives us imagery of what the people of Israel, of Ephraim and Judah, were, were like. And as we probably know if you read any of it, it's not only an image of them, but of us as well. Images of adultery and the harlotry of, of Gomer in the first three chapters of Hosea speak to us of the idolatry, of the infidelity, the unfaithfulness in Israel. Descriptions of the pus, the infection, the lion, the panther, the trapper, the vulture, speak to us of God's judgment. And then as we've seen in chapter 6, the mist and the dew, the chaff and the smoke, speak to us of the fickleness of Israel's passion, the fickleness and instability of them as a nation and worshiping their God. But not all of the figures that Hosea has are shocking. We've seen a couple already. We'll see some more as we go along. Not all of them are condemning because Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, depicts himself through Hosea as Israel's husband, as a loving father, as a lover, as a parent. And in the end of the book, Jehovah is pictured as a luxuriant cypress, cypress tree which, from which the fruit is for all of his people. 
However, in chapter 7, as we go through simile and metaphor and simile and complaint, all of the depictions, all of the imagery, all of the similes and metaphors speak of God's judgment of the people. A heated oven, a cake not turned, a silly dove, and a bow that is called deceitful or unfaithful because it can't be trusted to shoot the arrow straight. All of these are depictions of the people, their heart, what they're like. And to people like the Israelites in that day, word pictures spoke volumes. They, they, they perhaps meant more than they would to us because of the everyday experiences of the oven, of the bow, of the, of the doves, they, they, they could easily picture those because they were everyday experiences. They were things that they saw and they used and they became powerful and shocking images which mirrored their hearts. As they saw these things, Hosea says, you are looking at yourself. You're looking at yourself as the heated oven, as the silly dove, as the unfaithful bow. And these images and these figures of speech that Hosea uses, and at the risk of giving away the entire punchline, are that concatenation, that kind of culmination of the litany of sins that we see in chapter 6, continuing in chapter 7. And now God is putting them, I think, in this form so that they, he drives them home. You don't think, you don't pray, you don't repent. You are prideful, you are rebellious, you are fighting against me. In this particular passage, verses 3 through 7, we have the simile of the hot oven. And I don't know, I liked my fourth grade teacher, but I'm not sure that I remembered her definition of a simile. But the dictionary tells me again that it's a word or phrase that, that compares two unlike things using the word like or as. And so in verse Three, when he said, or four, he says, like an oven heated by the baker. There's your, your simile, like a heated oven. As opposed to the metaphor in verse eight, where he says, Ephraim has become a cake not turned, where it is a description of something that is, is not that. Ephraim is a people that's not a cake, but there's your metaphor. And these are the things that we will study in the next few weeks, why does Hosea use this particular one, and what are the pieces? So what I would like to do in these verses is to try to give you the, maybe the playbill, give you kind of the little, the, the backstory of what is the oven? What is he saying here? And I will admit that the Hebrew is much more obscure than I could do on my own, and there are a couple of different interpretations because of some vagaries to the Hebrew. But I would like to draw your attention to the three verses that uses hot like an oven or heated like an oven. Verse 4, they are all adulterers like an oven heated by a baker. Notice the, they all are like this. They're all. And I think there are at least three groups of players here. 
And there are those who say, well, you know, there's the oven, but you've got the baker. Who's the baker? And I think there are two possibilities. Either the baker has neglected to stir the fire in verse 4, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. But I, and so the idea some commentators have is, is that the baker has neglected the fire, and therefore when he put the bread in, that it scorched it. Well, that's not how an oven works. That's not how, I mean, we, we've spent the weekend, uh, 12 hours yesterday without power, and we kept the, the wood stove going. And if you're going to cook something in a wood stove, or even on your grill and your patio, you, you don't scorch it in the flames, you cook it over the coals so that you can cook it through without burning it up. And so I don't think the baker is neglecting anything at all. He's stoked the fire and it is burning down to those coals ready for the cake, the bread, while he's kneading the dough. But there's that process of leavening of the dough that is also going on here. And then in verse 6, he says, For their hearts are like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all day. Well, I, I have taken that he's talked about the baker. There are some translations that say, well, this is the baker. And I would take the translation that says, the baker sleeps all night. Now, again, there are some who say, see, he's neglected. He slept all night. But that, again, I, my mother-in-law was the one who could keep the wood stove burning at my wife's house. In fact, during the winter, when it was 25 below outside, it would be 80 degrees inside because that's how she liked it. And at night, my job when I was there was to go out to the woodshed and bring in the wood, and she would stoke the, the fire. She knew how to pack it so that it wasn't too dense because if it's too dense, it doesn't draw. And if it's just right, it will draw fine so that it burns all night. And if you're in New Hampshire, in 25 below, and that's the only means of heating your house, you have to do it right. But I don't think he's neglected. I think he stoked the fire. Verse 7, all of them are like a hot oven. All of them. And I believe that the actors here are the king and the princes and the baker who is the place of the priests. Because you see, in verse 7, and this is why I went back to read 11b through 7, 1, and 2, the story begins back there. He, he zeroes us in on Ephraim. He, he says the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. Well, that was the court. That was the section of Israel that was set aside for the king and for the princes. The court was there. Also, the priests and prophets were there. And when he says the evil deeds of Samaria, that was the capital city of Ephraim, not the region that we're used to reading about in the, in the Gospels. It was the city. And so we've zeroed in on, oh, this is the capital city. This is the citadel. This is where the palace is. And when the story opens in verse 3, 
We're in the king's palace. We're in there, as verse 5 tells us, on the day of a festival. Perhaps the king's birthday bash. Or most people think it was either a coronation day or the anniversary of his coronation. And the evil deeds of Samaria, the capital city, are coming now to light. The, the description, the thief, in verse 1, enters in and bandits raid outside. There was corruption inside and out. There were those who were surrounding and, and, and they were waylaying people coming in. They were preventing people from coming out. But there was the intrigue and all of the scandals going on inside. And everyone was wanting the king's ear. Everyone was wanting to be on the king's good side. And guess what? The king was glad when they were on his side, verse 3. With their wickedness, they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. None more than the priests wanted to have the king's ear. They were the ones assigned to uphold the law of God. But we know if we read, for example, in 2 Kings 14, 15, we see that they had their own self-interest as well. As David Hubbard says in his commentary, the fact that the priests were both subservient to royalty and dependent upon their patronage for support made them ready candidates to sponsor rebellion. So you have the king who wants to do his program. In the case of Jeroboam II, it was, I don't want the people of Israel going to Judah to worship. We will worship in Dan and Bethel, and they won't have so far to travel. And so how was he going to get them to agree? Does the law of God say, thou shalt worship the Lord your God? Yes, it does. But we'll tell them, yeah, we'll make it easier for you. We don't want you to go down into the land of Judah, to Jerusalem. We'll make it easy. You can fulfill the law by worshiping closer to home. And then we see the story unfolding. Their wickedness, they made the king glad. Princes with their lies. The king was pleased that the wicked schemes that he had devised were accepted by his subjects and perhaps even aided by the priests. And the priests, in turn, were emboldened with their own sin. Ah, we've got him going now. Let's keep him going. And the king was then pleased to see, oh, well, now... I have people to do my bidding. And the princes, it says, were glad with the lies. And I can imagine, as I thought about this, that the lies really go both ways, do they not? If you want to falsely praise someone, lie about them so that they can be elevated to position, or maybe there are times when you falsely slander someone so that they will be deposed from their position. But in any event, the princes were glad with the lies that were being bandied about. And Hosea says in verse 4, they are all adulterers. They have broken the covenant. They have practiced deceit. They have given themselves over to their desires. Like an oven 
heated by the baker. The lust within, the heat and passion of their schemes, of their wickedness, of their evil desires, is like an oven heated by the baker. He does not stir it, but he lets it burn while he kneads the dough. And that's why I believe that these, this is the description of the priests. Because can you imagine, and we are like this. I, I think God in some cases treats us like this. He instructs us in the way that we should go. But he knows our frame. He knows that we're slow. He knows that we have inertia. And little by little, we're instructed and taught. You, I was trying to tell one of my student's moms the other day. You know, he's coming out of a class where, you know, his regimen was to run a quarter mile a day. The book we're in wants you to run five miles a day. You've got to work up to that. The devil knows that. His helpers know that. The priests knew that. Let the fires burn. Let them burn down to those beautiful coals. Don't stir them up. Don't flame them up until the time. But we'll knead the dough. Beware, Jesus says, the leaven of the Pharisees. Little by little, kneading, softening, causing us to break down resolve, energy, desire to do right causes them to heat up, causes that fire to be right for when they would strike. And on that great festival day, verse 5, they got all the princes drunk. They gave them wine. They made the palace festival great. And I don't know if it's the princes, the baker, or the king, I suspect, stretched out his hand with scoffers. Simply said, he clasped hands. On a handshake, you guys will do my bidding. You cynics, you scandalers, scandalous people, I'm in bed with you. Let's do this thing. And the king may have been made drunk by his own princes, and to be so would have been treachery and dishonor to his rank. It doesn't really matter to me because he stretched out his own hand. And I believe he came, became just the opposite of what we read about in Psalm 1, verse 1. When God says, I will bless the one who doesn't do these things, truly will he not, will he refuse to bless ones who do walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the path of sinners. Sit, as the king did, in the seat of scoffers. They're all prepared. They're all, if I could use the word, stoked. They're stoked up. The, the baker, the priest, they've loaded the fire before bedtime. They've loaded with all the fuel that it needs to burn and smolder and become a bed of coals overnight. And the baker sleeps knowing that 
My work is done. I have kneaded the dough. I have caused them to grow with passion. And now it's just heat the oven and wait until in the morning. And you know how the oven works. If you want to keep that fire going, that bed of coals is just right. So in the morning when you put the logs on, what does it do? It bursts in the flame. And that's exactly what he says. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. Unless you think that this is just, again, an image, just, just something that, that Hosea paints and says, this could happen. History tells us, 2 Kings 15 tells us, that from about 753 B.C. to 723 B.C., 30 years, there were six kings. Four of them were assassinated by their successors. Oh, <laughs> that means that four of them were assassins themselves. And one of them died in captivity in Assyria. And only one, as some commentators say, died in his own bed. I guess, as we would say erroneously, of natural causes. Princes rose against kings. One reign lasted six months. Another one lasted only one month. All of them are hot like an oven. All their kings have fallen. All of the six kings, until that day they were carried off into exile, were ruined. The kingdom that had such joy, the king being glad in verse 3, was in ruins by the end of verse 7. And finally... In the aftermath of all this trouble, all this turmoil, all this devouring and consuming, Jehovah speaks. None of them calls on me. All have been devoured. All have been consumed. But none, no one, nobody calls on me. Their rulers and kings are being consumed, but none sought God's counsel. Their, their kings are dead and they're dying, but no one sought God's governance. They were confused. They were in turmoil. They were drunk, but none cried out for God's comfort and his peace. It is easy for us to say, I've never sinned like these people did. I haven't been an adulterer. I haven't been a conspirator. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm not that bad. But the litany of sins in Hosea 6 and 7, the transgressions, the treachery, the wrongdoing, the lewdness, the Murder, the harlotry, is not meant as a list of moralistic actions at which we either fail or succeed. Hosea's images are designed to make us see that it is not a particular sin that angers God, 
but it is wrong thoughts of God, wrong attitudes about God, a wrong relationship with God which matters. Ian Murray, in his biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching his evangelistic style, summed it up with these words, summing up what he believed was perhaps the, the synthesis of how Lloyd-Jones approached his preaching. Sinfulness is a graver problem than sin. Sinfulness is a graver problem than sin. Yes, adultery is sin. Yes, murder is sin. Yes, these conspiracies, this wickedness, this lewdness. Yes, those are sins. But God is to the heart. God is to the soul. Lloyd-Jones himself said, Man lives and thinks as if God is the one who, quote, interferes and upsets everything. That is God who is the one who is in the way. God is the one who makes life hard. And yet it is God who says, None calls on me. None thinks about me. None thinks that I will see your sin. None thinks that, yes, I see that sin, but I'm concerned about the depth of your heart and your soul. And so we have many Christians walking around today, as I say, very easily, oh, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I don't steal. But their hearts are far from God. Because they don't think. They don't think about their own attitude to Him. They don't think that they have so cold of a love for Him. Do we see trouble? And do as one man said, why pray when you can worry? Do we see things happening in our lives, relationships coming apart? Difficulties approaching and say, I need counseling. I need to go down to the bookstore and find self-help. Do we feel like we know better than God how to deal with our situation? My reading of the Gospels, it seems, particularly in the book of Luke, that almost on every other page... The chapter starts almost in a very innocuous way. And Jesus went out to Capernaum and pray. And then he goes on in his ministry. But day after day, we see a picture of Jesus going out to pray. Jesus, the Son of God, praying. Jesus, the Son of God, on his knees, talking to the Father, presenting life and his people to his Father. And it was that example of the disciples, of Jesus to his disciples, I guess, that we ought to follow. After one of those, again, innocuous verses where Luke says, and Jesus went out to pray, when he returned, his disciples immediately come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because in our non-praying, what are we really saying to God? I don't need you. I don't trust you. I, I, I don't think that I really have anything that you need to help me with. And yet Jesus 
Jesus said, Lord, Father, help me. In 2 Peter, one of those great verses, 2 Peter 1, Peter very matter-of-factly tells us that if we are in Christ, if we know Him, he says this is true about us. God's, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do we believe it, but do we also act on it? If that is true, everything that pertains to our life, good or bad, turmoil and trouble, or things that give us joy and exaltation, everything pertaining to life and godliness, let it never be said of us, none of them calls upon me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we find these, these mirrors that Hosea holds up to us uh, convicting, difficult to look at, difficult to study, because He knows what we're like, and He knows what you're like. And Father, I do pray that you would forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cause us to turn, to be healed, to be washed, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds that we might walk with you, we might follow you, we might worship you. We ask that you would teach us and instruct us. We ask that you would give us a heart to know and understand these things, that you would be glorified and your church would be built up. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please rise for the benediction from 2 Thessalonians. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.